When a person becomes a follower of Jesus, it is a time for great rejoicing. In the past year, I've witnessed firsthand as several people have repented of their sins and turned to Jesus as Lord. And with the angels in heaven, there was great rejoicing. This is the greatest thing that can happen to anyone anywhere ever. The highlight of a person's life is when they are born again. Make no mistake. Some of us, though, may not experience that personally because we grew up in a family with parents who are followers of Jesus. But no matter what the age or the stage or the situation, when a person turns away from their life of self-rule and turns to Jesus as their loving ruler, that is the greatest, greatest moment of their life, bar none. And I think it's for that reason that it is so tragic when a person falls away from following Jesus. It's why it's so sad when a person stops being a Christian. When that person's a close friend or a family member, it's often even harder. Because the person who now denies Christ is the same person you once prayed with or even served in a ministry with. But now they have turned from Christ and they are no longer your brother or sister in Christ. It is tragic when a person falls away. All of your certainty for eternity is no longer theirs. The common love of the Lord is something you no longer share. Your passion, your focus, your drive, your devotion is all different to theirs. And the one that you prayed and praised with now has a cold, hard heart towards Jesus. It is a tragedy. Now, it's not without hope. We pray for them, don't we? We pray that they might return knowing that the Lord is full of mercy. It may even be that you have wandered and tonight is the night that you come back to the Lord. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for you and for us? So there is hope. So don't stop praying. But in the meantime, it is a tragedy. Even though it's hard to imagine, there's actually a type of falling away that is even more tragic. And that is when a Christian leader falls away. When a person who once preached Christ has now renounced Christ. When I was a young adult, there was a book published by Joshua Harris called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, It was a huge hit and Josh Harris gained fame all around the Christian world. 20 years after he published it, which is about five years ago, he backed down from what he said and he apologised for the words in the book. And then two years ago on Instagram, he announced that he had renounced his faith. His post on Instagram said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. It is tragic when a Christian leader falls away. It's tragic because his or her apostasy doesn't just affect them personally. It has the real potential to bring others down as well. Last year, Ravi Zacharias passed away after a long, powerful preaching ministry. He was often spoken about as being in the same league as Billy Graham. And his funeral was attended by even the Vice President of the United States. But in the months since his death, it's been revealed that he lived a double life. 
filled with deception and sexual immorality. And the legacy he leaves is a ministry in tatters. And we sit back and we feel the tragedy of his moral failure. And we wonder, how did it happen? Why did it happen? But more than anything else, we feel sad. Well, the reason I bring this up is that over the last, uh, last term in, in Term 1, we've, we've been through a journey through the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. We've covered 10 chapters and we've seen what is arguably the greatest moment in the whole Old Testament. God's promises had all come true in King Solomon. It was amazing. God promised his people a special land where they would enjoy God's special rule. And in Solomon, we're ticking all the boxes. He spent 20 years building the greatest religious building on the whole planet. And his wisdom and wealth led him to be regarded as the greatest leader on the whole planet. He and his people enjoyed peace and prosperity. This is the pinnacle of the Old Testament. And yet it is from this great height that he would fall. And his demise, the demise of his rule, is a tragedy. And I'm afraid that's what we're looking at today. It is a tragedy on so many levels. We go from great heights to great depths. And sadly, we will say, well, that escalated quickly. But even as we look at this tragedy, we are not without hope. Because even as things escalate or or, or de-escalate, however you want to put it, we know that God's promises will not fail. And this is true of this moment as well. And that that is on a global scale, which turns out also to be on a personal scale, a personal scale for you and for me. Because all these promises come true in Christ Jesus. So what went wrong? What went wrong with Solomon? What went wrong with Israel? Let's have a look at the first verse of chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The first word we've got there, it's been translated now. It can also be translated however or even but. And I think that's probably the best way to read it. We've had 10 chapters of wow and but. The but is that King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He married Pharaoh's daughter a long time back. And it's possible that... She may have even converted to become an Israelite. When it's discussed earlier on, it's kind of at least a bit neutral. But what happened next was definitely not okay. For we read that he loved many foreign women. These were women from other nations, nations that did not love the Lord. And yet Solomon loved those women from other nations. He loved those women from other nations and it was a recipe for disaster especially when you look at the place names, these countries that are the who's who of God's enemies. Solomon had, had reached out and he'd become a global leader of sorts. But as he spread his wings, he crossed a vital boundary. 
For it was one thing to have healthy international relationships. That's good. But it's another thing entirely to love those nations and to love their women. Because to do so was to break God's clear command. Verse 2. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. And yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. If you were just getting one verse fed to you at a time and you've just had verse 1, you'd go, but, you go, ooh, that's not good. And then verse 2, it's like, Oh, that's really not good. And it's not, is it? The command was clear. You must not marry them. And it wasn't because God was just some sort of you know, control freak or, or, or hated them having fun or something like that. He commanded them in this way because disobedience would lead to disaster. For if the people of Israel marry foreign women, they will turn your hearts to their gods. Is it possible that there could be anything worse than that? I mean, it's not about turning your hearts from one football team to another. It's not about turning your hearts from one nation to another, you know, renouncing your passport and getting a new one. It's about turning your hearts from the one true God to their gods, which are not really gods at all. This is the worst possible thing. It's a disaster. There is nothing more important in life then you and I remaining in love with Jesus. Jesus must be our number one love. There is nothing more important. I've said to my kids, I've said it to others as well, that when you choose to marry someone, if you do marry someone, choose someone who loves Jesus more than them. I know that Mandy loves Jesus more than me, and she knows that I love Jesus more than her. And it's at the heart of our marriage. And it's at the heart of our life. Because let's face it, in a hundred years' time, I won't be married to Mandy. But I will be deeply still in love with Jesus, God willing. Now, things with King Solomon and the whole context of life in the Old Testament are different in, in certain ways to our kind of Christian situation. Many things have changed, not to mention the fact that polygamy, marrying more than one person, is clearly out for New Testament people. But the principle remains, as much as you have the choice, you should choose to marry a person who loves Jesus more than they love you. If Solomon was truly wise, I mean, he was the wise guy, right? If he was truly wise, he would have done that, but he didn't. He fell for women from all these other godless nations, and it was a disaster. But what's more, he didn't just love one or two. Or 10, or 50, or 100. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and name tags, I expect. <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, the mind boggles. Uh, even if you try and work out logistics, the point is that Solomon broke this commandment not by kind of just maybe slightly stepping over the mark a little bit. Man, this guy got in a helicopter and went that far over the mark. A thousand spouses. It wasn't a little slip up. 
And with such a great risk came the inevitable result, verse 3b. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Solomon has fallen away. Wow. Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord. And we read on in verse 4 that in Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. King Solomon becomes an old man and what does he do in his old age? He turns away from the Lord. He stops worshipping the Lord. The Lord in his glorious temple, the, the, the temple that Solomon himself made. Now, what did he do? Do you reckon he walked past the temple next to his palace and kind of just tried not to have eye contact with anyone? What do you think happened? No longer would he obey the great commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. For him it was kind of like, you can have another couple of gods if you can fit them in. Instead he tried to fit those other gods in just like he tried to fit in the other nations and the other women of those nations. It is a terrible tragedy. Like an adulterous husband, Solomon had an affair with other gods. And like unexplained lipstick on a collar, he flirted his way from the one true God of the universe. And instead, verse 5, Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. It's not like he sort of said, uh, hello wife, whatever your name is, I'll come and sit next to you in your church and we'll just sort of, I'll be there to support you kind of thing. Huh? He jumped right in feet first. Solomon fully worshipped other gods, including Molech, Molech the most detestable god, the one to whom they would sacrifice humans, that they would sacrifice children. Solomon, no problem with that? Yeah, no worries. It was a dramatic and tragic turning away from the Lord. And here's what God thought about it, verse 6. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Solomon did evil in the Lord's sight. He didn't follow the Lord completely, which meant he didn't live like his father David. King David, who is said to have followed the Lord completely. Completely. Completely? What about that bit where he murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with? Completely? Friends, I don't think this is an error. See, King David is often seen as, as being devoted fully to the Lord, even though he had sinned. And I think that's because though he was a great sinner, he had a great saviour. His sins, they were many, but God's mercy was more. David wasn't perfect, but he was devoted to the Lord. Which I've got to say for me, gives me great comfort. Even though I have sinned often and I've hurt the Lord and I've hurt others, I know that the Lord forgives me and forgets those sins. If you have confessed your sins to the Lord, stop stewing on them. 
move on. Because the Lord has. If he can move on from David, then far out he can move on from you and me. And if you're worse than David, he'll still move on from you. Don't live in the past. Glorify God in the present and the future. But anyway, if you thought that Solomon's devotion to other gods was just in passing, have a look at these shocking words. It continues, verse 7 and 8. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. I mean, Solomon was getting pretty good at building religious buildings. He built the temple. It's kind of like, I reckon I could go into business. I'll build some other ones. You got another one you want to worship? I'll build that as well. No worries at all. I wonder if he's made up in Tyre and, you know, with all of those, you know, whether he might have, King Hiram might have said, oh, look, I'll help you out with that as well. Really? No, surely not. On Mount Zion was the Lord's temple. And on the other side of the valley in the Mount of Olives... He was building other temples. Wow. How the mighty have fallen. And how do you think the Lord would feel about this? Verse 9. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. It's not just like he read about him in the Bible. Now, that's about as good as we get, isn't it? And it's awesome because the Holy Spirit is present with us as we read the Bible and we meet God face to face in the word. But when I talk about face to face, Solomon had him, had him appear to him twice. Twice the Lord was there with him. And still he says, thanks God, I might just check out these other ones too. Really? The Lord was very angry at Solomon. After all, the... The Lord had specifically met with Solomon and it still didn't keep him faithful to the Lord. And this made the Lord very angry for verse 10. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshipping other gods. Remember Solomon when I said that to you? But Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. And because of this disobedience, judgment is coming from the Lord to Solomon and also to Solomon's kingdom. Verse 11. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. The great kingdom would crumble. The great kingdom of Israel would be torn away. Justice would be served and rightly so. It wouldn't be right for the Lord just to sit back there and to put up with that blatant apostasy. That wouldn't be right, would it? Solomon should not be, he could not be allowed to get away with abusing God in that way. To do so would harm the very integrity of the universe. Let's imagine this morning at the, the Anzac Day ceremony that we had down in Jamboree that, that right in the middle of it, someone walked up to the cenotaph and spat on it right there. And could you imagine what, imagine what it would be like if that happened, right? And imagine if. We just sat there and, and said, oh, well, that's okay. You can do anything you like. Could you imagine the, the catafalque party just sitting there like this saying, no worries, mate. Can you imagine that happening? I tell you what, it would be 
incredible, that kind of sacrilege right there on Anzac Day, in the middle of... I mean, do it at night if you're going to do it, because no one will see you, but in front of everybody, the audacity. Do you think it would be right for everybody to say, it's okay, don't worry about it, it doesn't mean anything, that gesture? Really? No. It would be good that some John Ambulance was there. And the police... If the Lord just saw Solomon go and worship a few other temples and other stuff like that, and he says, it's okay, he's a bit of a naughty boy, that Solomon, but that's okay. Really? Can the Lord get away with that? It would be wrong for the Lord not to punish Solomon for his blatant blasphemy. In fact, if I was God, I'd say, look, I'm, I'm up to here with you guys. Gone. Just blow the lot of you up. You know, I can send an asteroid. Okay, Jerusalem, line it up. Boom. I mean, you'd be tempted, wouldn't you? But he didn't blow them all up. In fact, he showed justice and judgment, but also mercy. Verse 12 and 13. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you are still alive, Solomon. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. In judgment, there was mercy and it was mercy for David's sake. The Lord made a promise to David, his son, about his son. He said to David, your son who would be king, this is what will happen to Samuel 7, 14 to 16. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, when he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any other father would do. But my favour will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. David, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. The Lord made this promise and nothing will stop him keeping it. Nothing will make him break it. Even Solomon's disgusting behaviour. It's a fresh reminder that the Lord is faithful and just and he keeps his promises. Like this one. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Is he trustworthy? Is he true? When he says, I forgive you, do you believe it? Friends, God will forgive us when we repent. We see an amazing picture of that here, don't we? We see his mercy. Because when the Lord should have wiped out Solomon and everyone else in the kingdom, he kept his promise and he showed mercy. And what's more, Solomon has had so much mercy shown to him that he's not even going to experience the whole unraveling of the kingdom himself. It's not even going to happen in his lifetime. He's just going to bounce along, doing what he's doing, and then he's going to die. But it would happen after he died. And how does it do that? Well, the Lord raises up three men who will carry out his judgment upon Solomon's kingdom. We're going to spend very little time in comparison to the rest. But have a look at verse 14. Then the Lord raised up Hadad the Edomite, a member of Edom's royal family, to be Solomon's adversary. 
And then verse 23, we read, God also raised up Rezon, son of Eliada, as Solomon's adversary. And then in verse 26 and following, we'll also hear about Jeroboam, son of Nebat. These are the men that the Lord would raise up to bring about his judgment. But what's fascinating here is, what's really interesting, is that this all happens, what we're about to read in this second half of Kings, uh, of chapter 11, this all happens before Solomon even goes astray. Try and get your head around that. Even before Solomon had turned from the Lord, these agents of God were already getting ready to carry out the Lord's judgment. God's sovereignty is so widespread that even before Solomon sins, God had already planned for the division of the kingdom. God's not sitting back passively, just watching and reacting. He, even Solomon's sins sit under the sovereign hand of God. Solomon's sin sits within the sovereignty of God. And so in verse 15, we read that years before, David had defeated Edom. That's a long time, the time of David, when David was king. Joab, his army commander, had stayed to bury some of the Israelite soldiers who had died in battle. And while there, they killed every male in Edom. The Edomites never really got over that. And so even though Hadad was only a boy, he held a grudge against the kingdom of David. And, and the Lord was going to use that hatred to bring his justice. And then the second guy. We read in verse 24b that after David conquered Hadadezer, Reason and his men fled to Damascus where he became king. Reason was Israel's bitter adversary for the rest of Solomon's reign and he made trouble just as Hadad did. Reason hated Israel intensely and continued to reign in Aram. This guy doesn't like God's people and we're going to see that he unleashes it but it's the story of the third rebel leader Jeroboam that features more in this chapter than the others we read in verse 26 that another rebel leader was Jeroboam son of Nebat one of Solomon's own officials one of his own officials he came from the town of Zeradah in Ephraim and his mother was Zeruah a widow uh, this is one of Solomon's key workers, okay? Jeroboam, one of Solomon's key guys. We read a couple of verses later. Jeroboam was a very capable young man, and when Solomon saw how industrious he was, he put him in charge of the labor force from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph. But it turns out that God's got bigger plans for Jeroboam, even bigger than working as a key man in Solomon's team. And he'd find this out when he met one of the Lord's prophets. In verse 29, one day as Jeroboam was leaving Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh met him along the way. Ahijah was wearing a, a new cloak. The two of them were alone in the field and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and he tore it into 12 pieces. A bit of a shame. Nice new jacket, 12 bits, rip, 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 12 times. That's a bit random, really. Why would he do that? Why would he rip his cloak up into 12 dozen, in 12 little, little pieces, a dozen little pieces? It turns out that the cloak represents the kingdom of God. 
And by ripping it into 12 bits, he's showing what will happen to the kingdom of God. Look from verse 31. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 of these pieces, Jeroboam, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and I will give 10 of the tribes to you. Jeroboam, one of the, one of the key leaders of Solomon's team, he was actually going to become king of Israel. One of his servants would become king and God's people would be divided and Jeroboam would be the king of most of it. Right here is a very, very important time in the history of God's people. This is a turning point in the history of Israel. Right here, right now, this very moment. It's going to go from a strong, united kingdom under Solomon, who was arguably until this time the greatest king of all, and certainly socially and, and, and financially and all that other stuff. This great kingdom is going to be ripped up. But God will keep his, his promises. There's a reason that it's divided. There's a reason that, that Jeroboam doesn't get the whole cloak. Because we read verse 32. God says, But I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel. For the sake of David. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you thought about that phrase. For the sake of David, for the sake of the promise that I made to David, my special king, I am not going to throw the whole lot of them out. I'm going to keep just one or just two, depending on how the cloak thing works. But it's not going to happen while Solomon's alive. I've already heard that. But when he does die, this is what will happen. Verse 35, skipping ahead. But I will take the kingdom away from his son, and give ten of the tribes to you. His son will have one tribe so that the descendants of David, my servant, will continue to reign, shining like a lamp in Jerusalem, the city I have chosen to be the place for my name. Can you see how much God values his promises? Everything has absolutely gone pear-shaped. And yet he keeps his promises and he values Jerusalem. Jerusalem his precious city. He's said that a descendant of David will keep ruling and he's not going to break that promise even though Solomon is a bonehead because he wishes that a descendant of David would continue to reign, shining like a lamp. Nothing will stop God's promises being fulfilled. And I, You know what verse came to my mind as I was looking at this and thinking about Jerusalem, about the lamp and all this kind of stuff? It was when Jesus said to the people in John 8, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. And so God promised Jeroboam that he would rule 10 of the 12 tribes. And he also said to him, listen, you can, you can sort of have a David kind of life if you follow me, if you sort of obey me, if, if you keep my commands and decrees. But that's not going to happen. Oh, except we read also, verse 40, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to King Shishak of Egypt and stayed there until Solomon died. And that was that. And so verse 43, when he died, he was buried in the city of David, named for his father. Then his son Rehoboam became the next king. The king is dead. Long live the king. Solomon is replaced by his son, Rehoboam, 
And next week in chapter 12, we'll see how Rehoboam goes from leading the lot to just reading, leading a little bit because Jeroboam will step in as well. Friends, we tonight have seen a very sad chapter of the Bible. To see the falling away of King Solomon is enough to break our hearts. This guy, far out, he could have been the man. He could have been that great king and we wanted him to, didn't we? We saw David and we thought, wow, we, we know that someone greater than David's coming. It must be Solomon. Surely, 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 surely. Ooh, no. And in the end, you've got to wonder how he might de- desert the Lord. What might he do to make that happen? What would lead him to drift away from the Lord? How could there be so much mission creep that he'd end up building altars for detestable pagan gods? What on earth went wrong? You've got to ask yourself the question, Surely. We're told that it's because he loved foreign women whom he married in the hundreds. He lost his first love, the the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Here he was, the wisest guy in the world and the most influential guy in the world and possibly the most wealthy guy in the world and his heart drifted from the Lord. Can you believe it? I suspect it was hard for him to try and keep everyone happy everywhere. Maybe that's what he wanted to do. He would have spent a lot of time with rulers who followed other gods. Lots of time, you know, there at the United Nations, sharing stories, talking about what it's like there to be a king in another land. And somewhere along the line, he just drifted away. He drifted away from the Lord and into the harms of the pagan gods. It's not particularly new or special, this story. I mean, it's tragic, surely. But this kind of thing happens all the time. Christian men and women have been drifting away from Jesus throughout history. And how does that happen? Have they maybe thought, let's just see if we can be a little bit more like our society Because if we can be just a bit more like them, then they'll like us. And then when they like us, they'll like Jesus. And it'll all be fine, surely. Surely. We'll connect with society. We'll woo the world. But in the end, the world has wooed them. And they've drifted away. I can't help thinking about this word from Jesus It always just sort of sticks in my throat as I read it. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world and so it hates you. Don't be like Solomon. Don't love the world. Because if you love the world, it will lead you from Jesus. And you'll be like Solomon, the wisest man in the world who lost his first love for the Lord. Which doesn't mean that he's the wisest man in the world, really. He's actually the most stupid man in the world.